The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Closed-door negotiations. A Mohawk chief suggested protesters stop blocking the trains. Instead, they started blocking his door. Base of isolation. After spending two weeks cooped up on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, a Canadian permanent resident resets the quarantine clock, this time on a military base in California. Scouts dishonor. Facing hundreds of sex abuse lawsuits, the Boy Scouts of America has filed for bankruptcy. One former scout says this will make it easier for him and other victims to finally get justice. Helping a guy out. A homeless man crawled into a garbage bin for safety and warmth, got trapped, and spent two days inside until our guest came along. He let his words speak for themselves. Author Charles Portis, who wrote the best-selling Western True Grit, rarely gave interviews, but that doesn't mean he didn't have a lot to say. Tonight, we pay tribute to the late, great American novelist. And out of the woods. Fifty years after she lost her boyfriend's class ring in a main department store, it turns up in a Finnish forest. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that loves to see a woman getting the old band back together. Justin Trudeau is putting his faith in dialogue. The Prime Minister addressed the House of Commons this morning about the Indigenous-led blockades, which have snarled rail traffic from coast to coast. Mr. Trudeau appealed to both Wet'suwet'en leaders in B.C. and Mohawk leaders in Quebec and Ontario to sit down for talks. And he warned about the risks on both sides of failing to find some sort of compromise. Do we want to become a country of irreconcilable differences? Where people talk but refuse to listen? where politicians are ordering police to arrest people. A country where people think they can tamper with rail lines and endanger lives. This is simply unacceptable. But while Prime Minister Trudeau was calling for dialogue, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer has heard enough. Mr. Speaker, that was the weakest response to a national crisis in Canadian Minister's word salad just now, Mr. Speaker, and at least two key things were missing. A clear denunciation that the actions of these radical activists are illegal, and some kind of an action plan that would put an end to the illegal blockades and get our economy back on track. Serge Simon is the Grand Chief of the Genesatage Band Council. At a press conference this morning, he suggested that it might be time for his fellow Mohawks to end their rail blockades in Ontario and Quebec. We reached Grand Chief Simon in Ganesatage. Grand Chief Simon, what have you been hearing from protesters since you made your call for the blockades to come down? Well, I had some band members uh, at the office uh, 
they chained the band office doors and they're not letting anybody coming in to do their work. And I went to meet with them a little while ago and they're saying I acted unilaterally when I was trying to explain that I was acting what I thought was in the best interest of uh, our community, that a voice of reason, one of uh, compassion over uh, the situation, but they perceive it more like, like I'm giving up and that's not the case at all. They're angry with you. Of course. You said in the in the press conference that, that they've made their point that the blockades have served the purpose. What what have the blockades accomplished at this point? Well, right now there's going to be a dialogue with the uh, West Waiting people, and uh, I think the dialogue has to be done in an atmosphere of respect. I think uh, it's going to achieve its goal. I always said that even if they did consider to take the blockades down, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be brought back up again and possibly somewhere else. So it's really not giving in. It's simply giving a chance for the process to move forward so that the uh, Westwetton people can at least be heard but it was interesting that Perry Bellegarde, the, the Assembly of First Nations Grand Chief, he was asked if he thought that the blockades should come down as well. He carefully skirted around that. He did say that nothing could change until they saw something substantive and meaningful, he said. Do you think there has been something substantive and meaningful that's come out of this standoff in, in, over these past weeks? I can't say that I, that I have. But it could be the, the problem is uh, the blockades could be making it more difficult for any uh, discussions or any progress to be had. That's why I'm just asking if they would consider that the point was made and that maybe there's another way we could help the Wiswetan people advancing their, uh, their issues. At the press conference this morning, your fellow Mohawk Grand Chiefs, they reminded us of the standoffs at Oka and at Ipawash, where, as you know, the people died there. So what concerns do you have if these blockades stay up? Well, my fellow Grand Chiefs made a, an excellent point because uh, we understand full well how peaceful protests, it's not up to us how, how they evolve and that's the risk that we see. Because, look, I'm from Oka. I was here during 1990. I was here. I lived here my whole life. And, yeah, Iprawash as well. So this is what worries me the most, is that we start off peacefully. Our intentions are right. But it's not often our choice on how it gets resolved. What's your your feelings about what Mr. Shear said today and and in other places about what he refers to the illegal radical activists? What is Mr. Shear's strategy? Do you think Mr. Shear, I think, is uh, is playing dangerous politics with uh, a delicate uh, situation, and I don't think he's learned anything about the past. Whereas Mr. Trudeau is trying to use those lessons of the past and try to show a little bit more restraint. Whereas Mr. Shear wants to push the issue and he doesn't seem to care what the results might be. Like uh, Mr. Shear said, you know, illegal activism. There's nothing illegal about First Nations people defending their land. 
Do you think that the kind of talk that we're hearing from Mr. Scheer will encourage the blockades and the protests to continue as they are? It might harden the position of the uh, protesters. It won't leave much room for dialogue the way he's, he's talking. So not quite sure exactly uh, what his uh, intent is, but we can pretty well guess. Do you think it might escalate situation? If Mr. Scheer was the one in power, it would have escalated by now for sure. Is it not also possible that the blockades would come down out of fear of what a government might do? If they might send in the army or the police or whatever, that maybe that kind of talk would have done something? Uh, for one thing, uh, this I know for sure that the guys that are on the blockades, really, they're not afraid of that. They're not afraid of that one bit. I can guarantee you that the protesters aren't afraid of any... Uh, retaliation if the if the police are sent in uh, I think it's uh, they're just gonna meet it head-on but that's where the danger of escalation comes in so again instead of having dialogue and trying to find a peaceful resolution to it the real risk of escalation is there do you think that Canadians are aware of this in a way they wouldn't have been if this, these protests had not happened, if the blockades hadn't been set up, do you think that that's actually brought an awareness of what the Wet'suwet'en are saying? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I don't know. Uh, if people weren't paying attention. Uh, I don't know where they've been. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's bringing a sharp focus on the issue uh, with the Wet'suwet'en people, but also with uh, Native uh, issues across the country. And so what would you say to the protesters if you could be up there at those blockades now? Well, I'd ask them right out. Do you think we've achieved what we wanted to achieve? If not, well then, they'll go on. But? Just that uh, they did well, and I respect them and I support them. And what would you advise then? I would advise to listen closely to what's going on within the politics, because uh, it might be a sign of where this whole thing is going, and that we should prepare in the eventuality that does escalate. Grand Chief Simon, I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Anytime. Serge Simon is the Grand Chief of the Ganesatage Band Council. In the face of a mountain of claims of sexual abuse, the Boy Scouts of America is filing for bankruptcy. The historic organization is being sued by former scouts who say they were abused by scout leaders. Hundreds more boys and men have come forward in the last year with complaints. The Boy Scouts organization says the bankruptcy will help them compensate victims. But the filing also raises obvious questions about the future of the scouts, which is still one of the largest youth groups in the United States. Robbie Pierce is a former Boy Scout who says he was abused on a camping trip in 1994. We reached him in Los Angeles. And a note to listeners that this conversation includes a discussion of sexual abuse. Robbie, this bankruptcy announcement today came with an apology from the Boy Scouts of America. What does that apology mean for you? You know, I, I never expected to get that apology. Even as we were hoping to make this organization take some responsibility, there was a part of me that feared that they would avoid an outright apology. And so it's been pretty meaningful 
and you think that it shows that it ha- the organization and its leaders have taken responsibility? No, I think that this is only the very beginning of taking that responsibility. This is not enough. It's not going to fix or undo anything that that was done by the organization. But it is it is the beginning of a new day with the Boy Scouts. And it's very encouraging for me that we have them on record taking responsibility, acknowledging that there were things that they could have done to prevent the scale of this abuse and that they didn't do it. And next we will see them in bankruptcy court. And that's it. the head of Boy Scouts of America, Roger Mosby. He says he believes that bankruptcy will actually help victims, help compensation with victims. What do you hope that this bankruptcy filing will do? I think that's true. I think that there are both positives and negatives to what's happening, because on one hand, it means that individuals can no longer sue the the Boy Scouts, which is a way to get another kind of closure for victims. But this also means that as a whole, the group of victims of the Boy Scouts of America are able to to move forward. And I believe that we will be able to get some sort of uh, settlement. The Boy Scouts of America acknowledged that there were thousands of perpetrators into this kind of abuse and that there were obviously then thousands of victims of it. Each one of those represents a story like your own, right? Every single one is somebody who was affected by that. Yours, your experience of this abuse came in when you were 13 years old on a scout camping trip. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I have a brother just a year younger than me, and we were both at a scout camp up in the Sierras. And one evening, shortly after we had we had gone to bed, a few of the scouts became sick. I was among them. We were just throwing up and, you know, probably ate something not great at dinner. So the five of us went up to the medic lodge, and the medic wasn't there. And instead, there was a man... We recognized him as one of the leaders of of the Boy Scout camp that we were staying at. We he's, didn't know he's, he was one of the volunteers. Uh, I believe he was a an employee, mm-hmm. actually. And so we, he had us come into the medic's lodge one by one, and he had me disrobe when it was my turn. And he told me he was checking for a hernia and fondled me for a little while. I remember him saying, are you shaking because my hands are cold or because I'm not a real doctor? That stayed with me for a long time. And when I was done, I went out and one of the other boys went in and we went back and we didn't talk about what had happened. And it was years before I came to, came to understand how, just how frightening that was for me and how I had, bottled a lot of things up and how it really just did a number on me psychologically. I I had thought that what had happened was my fault for a long time, and I didn't understand that it was a thing that had happened to more kids. And it wasn't until I was, well, until a year or two ago when I was listening to the radio and heard a story about other victims coming forward that I realized that there were many of us. I didn't even then realize that it was thousands of us, but I knew there were many, and I thought that I should add my voice 
And so I called the phone number that I heard on the radio, and and I understand that there are thousands of us, and it really breaks my heart. I'm so sorry to hear all of that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Now, though, there is an organization. There are there are lawyers. There are those who are going to pursue the Boy Scouts of America for what happened to all of you. Many are saying that the Boy Scouts of America, they, they can't be reformed. This has to be the end. This is not the whole structure, the whole organization of the Scouts just lends itself to this kind of abuse. What do you say to that? There has to be a way to work with children, to have adults guiding children and and teaching them and, and helping them to have positive experiences. So I don't believe that nobody could do it. I don't know if the Boy Scouts at this point could do it, if they're really willing to execute the complete overhaul that it will take. They might not be the ones to do it. I think they have lost a lot of public trust even in the last day, even today for this. I have had so many positive, formative experiences in the scouting program, but I would trade them all up to get rid of what they did to me or to any of the the other boys. So that's what will be decided next through this bankruptcy hearing is whether they will be able to continue to function in some new under some new parameters or whether they will be done for. And frankly, all I care about is that this doesn't happen to more children. Robbie, I really appreciate that you speak with us and share this. I'm sorry to to uh, probe into some really, really painful memories for you, but thank you. I really appreciate you your reporting on this. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Robbie Pierce is a former Boy Scout. He says he was abused during a camping trip in 1994. He was in Los Angeles. The CBC has not independently verified his account. You can find that interview on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. In 1973, when Deborah McKenna was 16, her boyfriend Sean gave her his class ring. She cherished it. Then she lost it. But Ms. McKenna and Sean stayed together. They got married and started a family. In 2017, Sean died of cancer. And then, last week, Ms. McKenna got a memento of her late husband that she'd long ago given up on. A package came in the mail, and inside it was that lost ring. That was obviously a surprise, but even more surprising, in fact, completely baffling, is where that ring was found. We reached Deborah McKenna in Brunswick, Maine. Deborah, what was it like to hold your husband's class ring after 47 years? Amazing. I was in disbelief, and of course I was inspecting it just to make sure it truly was his ring and legit and it is. It, it is everything that it was when I had it when I was 16. In 1973. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what, is it, what does it look like? It is a white gold, pretty hefty men's class ring. It has a carving of a, a ship because our class mascot is a ship, shipbuilders. And then on the other side, it says Morse High School and Bath, Maine. And then the stone was blue. And how do you know it was, it was his? 
had his initials on the inside of it, and he is the only one in his class who has those initials. And it just had an S and an M inside. Do you remember when he gave it to you? I don't specifically remember. I know that it was after he graduated, so it had to be in the fall of the, the end of the summer or the fall. He was going off to college. And he gave it to me then, and I lost it soon after that. Oh, my. And so he went off to college. You had the ring, and how did you lose it? Well, I went to Portland, Maine, which at that time was a big city for a bath girl. We were shopping at the local department store, which was Porteous, Mitchell, and Braun, which is now the Maine Arts Academy. But I went into the restroom and took it off. Didn't want to get that wet, so I set it on the side of the sink and washed my hands and walked out without it. And that was it. You didn't see it again. That was it. Um. Went back minutes later, and it was not there. And, of course, frantic, looking everywhere, thinking it must have gone down the drain. It could have been anywhere. I could not find it anywhere. And there was no one else in the the restroom at the time. How did did boyfriend Sean react when you told him that you had lost it? It didn't want to tell him, but once I told him, he was so cool about it. He just said, you know, it's just a ring. It's uh, it's a material thing and, and always can be replaced. Don't worry about it. And he was very logical about stuff. And he said, well, it'll turn up if it's going to turn up. And then we forgot about it. And He sounds like the kind of guy you should marry, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, exactly. Okay, so he, he told you that if it's going to turn up, it'll turn up and... Yeah. Where did it turn up? It turned up in Finland, of all places. Not in the U.S., but in Finland. Okay, so let's hear the story of how <laughs> it managed, well, who found it in Finland? What, what's the story there? The, the young man who found it, Marco, apparently he's a welder, and he and his little boy usually go out in the woods and look for metal. He's got a metal detector, and he usually comes up with maybe some artifacts, And he happened to go out this particular day without his son. His son is, I believe, four years old. And he was in the woods and he went over the soil and his Geiger started beeping. He said that he dug down like he normally does, three or four inches and still nothing. But it was really reacting quite strongly. So he dug down another four inches and found the ring. And and he he finds this ring in Finland. And what did he have to do in order to get it back to you. Well, he was very interested because it had the ship on the side and he's a welder and there's a lot of welding when you're shipbuilding and um, he was very interested in it. So he started researching it, realizing that Bath, Maine is on the side of it. So he started there and Morse High School was the name. And then um, we have a very active alumni with Morse High School. It's one of the most active in the U.S., and we all have a website. Each year has a website. And so he contacted the 1973 administrator of that website on Facebook. And she contacted me and said, I think we found Sean's ring. Can you tell me if you lost it and where he lost it? And I told her the story and she was incredulous. She said, <laughs> that's not where it's turned up. And what, this man obviously went to a great deal of trouble to track down the owner. He sure did. And he was very excited about it. And once he started talking with the administrator, he offered to send it back to them, to the Alumni Association, and she encouraged him to send it back to me directly. And the class ended up paying for that postage. And so he went to the trouble of 
getting it taken care of and sent to us and gave us the tracking number. So it was fun to watch it track from Finland all the way to the U.S. It took almost a month to get here. And you opened that package and there it was in your hand. There it was wrapped in a paper towel. It's a little bit worn, but it's not, I mean, it's not brand new by any stretch of the imagination. And it looks like it's been worn. It has some, a bit of wear on it. The stones are chipped a bit. So um, I, I would love to know exactly what the path was. And you're not able to share this story with your husband. No, my husband sadly passed away in 2017 um, uh, from cancer. He had esophageal cancer for six years and passed away a couple of years ago, three years ago. I'm sorry. Thank you. But you had 40 years together. We sure did. 40 great years plus. So we're grateful for that. And we had a very unique love and respect for each other and trust and life together. We, We kept saying, boy, we've had a really good run of it, haven't we? Okay, so the question is, is that why do you think now? What's your feeling about why this turned up in your life now? That, I, you know, that's the question I keep asking myself over and over, trying to figure out what's the reasoning. And I don't know if, if um, you had read anything else, but I had mentioned that my husband doesn't believe in coincidences, that everything happens for a reason, that there are no coincidences. This is how it's supposed to line up. So I'm thinking that he's letting me know that Yep, he's thinking of me, and our love was pure back then and new, and now it's come full circle, and it's, it's, it's okay for me to get on with my life. Deborah, thank you for sharing this story with us. You are welcome. Take care. Okay, thank you. Deborah McKenna was recently reunited with a class ring she lost 47 years ago. We reached her in Brunswick, Maine. seems that wherever they go, passengers of the Diamond Princess cruise ship can't escape the threat of coronavirus. On the weekend, hundreds of Americans were evacuated from the quarantined cruise ship to the U.S. But little did the passengers know that they would be taking that evacuation flight with some Americans who had tested positive for the coronavirus. Meanwhile, on board the cruise ship, 542 passengers have tested positive for the virus so far, and Canadian passengers are still waiting for their evacuation flight. Spencer Fehrenbacher is a Canadian permanent resident and a U.S. citizen. He was evacuated on Sunday. He's now on Travis Air Force Base in California, where he'll spend another 14 days under quarantine. We reached him there. Spencer, how does it feel to go from one quarantine on a ship to another quarantine on U.S. soil? Well, Carol, I think if you were going to ask me yesterday, I probably would have said it's been an emotional and somewhat rocky experience, but Waking up here day two, I realized uh, I'm actually very thankful uh, for a couple different reasons that I am doing a second quarantine here uh, in the United States. Okay, so and you are now at Travis Air Force Base, and is that where you're staying? Is that where they're keeping the people that they've taken off the ship? Yes, ma'am. We're we're split. As I understand it, we're split between uh, a couple different bases, the main one being, main two being Travis Air Force Base here in California, and then a second base in San Antonio, Texas. What was it like on the ship? First of all, let's just go back to that. I mean, was that quite a stressful two weeks that you just spent? 
It, it was. The first three days were very difficult, simply because we, myself and the three people I was traveling with, all four of us were identified as high risk uh, when the quarantine began. So that first night, we were actually given the uh, test, and they did not tell us whether or not we were positive or negative. And so we basically had to wait for three days um, with daily announcements of 10 new cases and then 20 new cases and then the third and final day, 41 new cases. And it was only then that uh, I actually just learned from news sources that all of those initial samples had been processed and that that was the reason why I knew definitively my test came back negative. All right. So that was, you knew that you were negative then, but now the clock starts again for the next 14 days and they'll be watching for any symptoms. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. I literally just had my temperature taken five minutes before our call. Um, I understand that on board was not just those being evacuated, but those who had tested positive. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a little unclear as to exactly how that worked. Uh, but I do know that there were people on board who had tested positive. And the only reason that I know that is when we landed, there was a, a moment where before we uh, got off the plane, somebody uh, asked, you know, hey, excuse me, where, where is this passenger? And they said this person's name. And the person in the row directly behind me raised their hand. And uh, somebody in a full hazmat suit with pressurized oxygen within the suit came walking up to, to this person and said, you and your husband are going to be staying on the plane and going to Omaha. And at the time, I had no idea what that meant. But I learned later on, um, after hearing uh, uh, some personnel here speaking with a group of passengers, that Omaha was the destination for anyone who had tested positive. And these people were sitting just behind you? Literally an airplane uh, seat right behind me, you know, three feet behind me for 11, 12 hours. And were you wearing a mask the whole time? I, I was, absolutely. Um, that was something that I was a little uh, taken aback by is myself and the uh, my cabin mate, we both, from the time we got on that plane, uh, tried to keep our masks on, you know, at 99.99% of the time. However, most of the passengers would, you know, take their masks off and eat some snacks or or have some water. I, I was a little shocked by how knowing kind of what we had all collectively been through for the last two weeks, uh, how cavalier a lot of these, these other people on the plane were about, you know, spending 20 minutes eating a sandwich, and then they're putting their mask back on without any concern for what what they might have just breathed in. Wow. Okay, in addition to people just sitting amongst you who were infected, there was a quarantined section of the airplane. Is that correct? There was. It was basically kind of thick, translucent plastic taped in a cube with duct tape in the middle of the airplane, uh, draped down and then resealed again at the, the floor of the air, aircraft. Wow. And so was that alarming for people to see that quarantined area? You know, it, it's tough to tell. When I got on the plane, you know, we'd already been on a bus for the last six hours. It was, it was about 3.30 in the morning by the time we got on the plane. And uh, the people that I spoke with, conversations were very minimal. And I, I mean, I can't imagine it wasn't alarming, but by that point, uh, I think everyone was kind of in survival mode. And so um, uh, once you start seeing hazmat suits, it, it takes a lot to, uh, to make you more concerned than you already are. Okay. So you were six hours on a bus. Were the, some of the people who were infected, were they with you? 
it's hard to know definitively, but there were, there were a number of people coughing. I mean, there oh, you hear people hacking up a lung and you're just thinking, okay, don't think about it, you know, because there's, there's nothing you can do at that point. Six hours on the bus and how many hours uh, in, in the air? I believe it was about 11 hours in the air. Oh, my gosh. So you, and so you have no idea what you've been exposed to just in the travel uh, from the ship to the Air Force Base in the U.S. That's exactly right. Um, I, I want to ask you, I know you're a permanent resident of Canada. Did you think that Canada should have reacted much more quickly as well? Canada reacted only after the United States did. Um, it, it's really difficult to say. As someone who feels very fortunate to call myself a Canadian permanent resident, the last thing I want to do is put myself in a place where I'm critical of, of what the Canadian government has done. But I think it's pretty clear to see that once the United States kind of took that first step in kind of ordering the evacuation, that I believe Canada was second to follow suit and see that Canada took that second step before the United Kingdom, before Australia, and now all of these other countries that are, are falling in line, uh, if nothing else, shows Canada's commitment to uh, to taking care of its people. Well, Spencer, I appreciate you, you uh, bringing us up to date on that uh, that extraordinary transition from one to the other, and uh, and I hope the time passes quickly. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carol. Thank you for having me on. Bye. Spencer Fehrenbacher is a Canadian permanent resident and a U.S. citizen. We reached him on Travis Air Force Base in California under coronavirus quarantine. For photographs taken on his long journey from Japan, you can go to our website, cbc.ca slash AIH. In their past lives, they were an investment banker, a police commissioner, a state governor, and the owner of a football team. But recently, they've been better known as convicted felons. Today, however, they were part of a group of 11 people granted clemency by U.S. President Donald Trump. Among them was Michael Milken, who was known in the 1980s as the Junk Bond King, and former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. The Democratic governor was eight years into a 14-year sentence after he was convicted of multiple corruption charges including trying to sell Barack Obama's vacated Senate seat for cash or a lucrative new job. While Mr. Blagojevich will leave prison, his conviction will stand. Back in 2011, after Rod Blagojevich's sentencing, as it happens, guest host Helen Mann spoke with Democrat Jack Franks. At the time, he was an Illinois state representative and a member of the legislature's impeachment committee. Here's part of that conversation from our archives. I think justice has been done today uh, because of the deliberate acts of bribery and extortion and fraud that ultimately led to this day. They do warrant a punishment tantamount to the serious nature of the former governor's crimes. The judge said that he took a number of things into account in delivering that sentence, one of which is that uh, he believes Mr. Blagojevich has now accepted responsibility for what he did. Do you agree? I guess maybe the most he can. All of my interactions with the former governor, he just seemed so immature that I didn't think that he could accept responsibility whatsoever. But hopefully today the gravity finally descended upon him, and I hope that he has now, and for his sake. Uh, part of, of his defense uh, was an allegation that it, it was his advisors who pushed him to do this, as well that he never actually pocketed any money. Should that have been taken into consideration, do you think? That's ridiculous. 
he had a bunch of yes men around him, and if anyone disagreed with them, he, he called them disloyal and threw them out and, and went after them personally. He knew exactly what he was doing every minute of the day. And he was a former prosecutor himself. He knew right from wrong. He was more interested in his own self-interest than that of those of the citizens he was elected to represent. So I think that's a ridiculous argument, and I'm sure the, the judge saw right through it. Where do you think this has left the people of Illinois when it comes to the government of the state and, uh, I guess, politics in general? I think people are disillusioned, and you'll see that in the low voter turnouts that we've had in our primary elections. In the last primary election, for instance, in my area, we had 13 percent voter turnout. I think we could lose an entire generation of young people to public service. You have to remember that in Illinois, our last two governors are now in federal prison. Four of our last nine have been convicted. You have a higher chance of being convicted and going to jail in Illinois if you're governor than if you commit a murder. Is that true? Yes. There's a lower clear rate for murders than there is for people who are former governors that have gone to jail. From 2011, that's As It Happens guest host Helen Mann speaking with Democrat Jack Franks about the 14-year sentence given to former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. Today, Mr. Blagojevich was one of 11 people granted clemency by U.S. President Donald Trump. On a quiet cul-de-sac in Saskatoon's North End, things seemed pretty normal last week. The daily routines of work and school were playing out as usual. Neighbors made small talk. And while regular life continued, no one noticed that one man on the street was fighting for his life, trapped inside a dumpster. And if it wasn't for Lisa Cush, he may not have survived. Ms. Cush lives on that cul-de-sac. We reached her in Saskatoon. Lisa, what did you hear outside your home last Friday that first caught your attention? The first time that I heard a noise, it sounded like kids yelling. And we live about half a block from a school. So I thought, oh, it's about 3.30, 4 o'clock. And I thought there was just some noise from people moving back and forth. And I kind of dismissed it. But what was it about that those sounds that made you think you had to investigate further? Well, a few minutes later, it happened again. It was a little louder, and it sounded like yelling. And it wasn't just the little bit of commotion that I heard before it caught my attention. And so then I went looking, and I didn't see anybody. It was quiet. So I thought, oh, all right, they've moved on. Whatever was happening is not, is not happening now. And I came back in the house. And then the third time I heard it, it was desperate. It was somebody yelling and I could hear that desperation in the voice. And that's when I went running out and stood in the cul-de-sac and kind of started looking all 360 degrees, trying to figure out where the sound was coming from because it was really disorienting. It was kind of bouncing off the houses. And that's when I noticed there was a hand coming out of the Loris disposal bin. And there was it was a man's hand and he was trying to stand up. Wow. So from the first time you heard something to when you, when you actually realized what the sound was and where it was coming from, how long had that been? Probably an hour. Because between the second time and the third time when I didn't hear anything, I came back in the house and I made tea. And I thought, oh, well, I've, that's nothing. I don't need to be worried about that. And I sat down and was relaxing. And then when I heard it the third time, I just went running. So... He had been calling for help on and off, and that's what I heard. Was it an open dumpster? Could you look inside and see what was there? Correct. It was an open dumpster. There was no lid. And who was this man? 
His name was Ruben. I never met him before. He's not from our community. He had been walking through the neighborhood on Wednesday night. He said he missed his last bus back to where he's been staying in downtown Saskatoon and found himself with nowhere to be, and it was minus 30. So when he saw that dumpster and looked inside and there was drywall from someone doing home renovations, he crawled in and covered himself up and fell asleep in the bottom. And he couldn't get out or what? Right. He slept for, he doesn't know, he thinks maybe 12, 18 hours because of the cold. And then when he woke up, he realized he was so weak, he couldn't yell, he couldn't get up. He hadn't had anything to eat or drink for a long time, and it was still quite cold. So he was yelling on and off, but he didn't have much of a voice. And then on Friday, as the weather started to warm up, he got a little bit more mobility and started trying to come up to his knees and cause a bigger stir. And and was there was there much debris in there? Could he could he was he was stuff piled on top of him? He there wasn't. It's about a third full. So I think that's part of why he couldn't get out. Once he got in, there was enough debris in there to cover himself up to protect himself from the cold, but when he wanted to get out, there was no way to get his legs back up over the ledge because he was so weak. So I had to get garbage cans and put them in there, extra ones, for him to create little steps to get him out. What condition was he in? I would say early stages hypothermia. His hands and his feet were turning pretty blue, very weak. I gave him some food and water when he came out. It took him quite some time to be able to stand up, and then we got him into the car. He didn't want to go for medical attention, but... He had shared that he was new to the province, so I'm not sure if that was because he doesn't have coverage yet or if because he he just didn't want to go to the hospital. And the people whose dumpster it was, did they not notice that the people who that were using it, didn't they hear or notice anything? They actually hadn't. The family that's there actually works some shift work, and they weren't home at, on Wednesday evening. And then when they did a little bit of renovations earlier the next day, and they tossed some things in, He thinks that that's when he was sleeping. He remembers feeling something kind of bump on him while he was sleeping and not responding. So they didn't look in because it's quite a tall bin. So they were mortified. The neighbors were mortified when I let them know what had occurred. And as such, now all of us in our little section of of the street have been taking turns checking the bin so that if that happened to anyone else, they would not have to spend a night in there. His name's Ruben, is it you said? Yes. Where did you Where did you take Reuben? Um, well, Reuben asked me to take him to a homeless shelter in downtown Saskatoon called the Lighthouse, and he told me that there were people there that knew him and that he would have support there. Do you know how he is? I don't. I've tried checking in there, and the one counselor that I have a connection with isn't in today, and they won't release information because I'm not family. So hopefully, down the road, I'll find out what happened to Reuben. He was a really sweet man, a very kind person. That was part of the reason why I was so mortified that someone was out in my bin 30 feet from my front door for two days, and I didn't know. And if I really think about it, I was kind of caught in this complacency in my very warm, comfortable home, doing my work, and hearing the noise outside on and off for those two days and not responding because I didn't think it really applied to me. That I didn't really need to check up on whatever was going on outside of my house. And it's just really shaken me how complacent we can be when our needs are met and 30 feet away there's someone freezing in a dumpster. But in fairness to yourself, you didn't know until you saw that hand that you had that person. That's right. 
There's just so many people, maybe 50 people a day walk past my home because of the school next door, and none of us heard him. But, and truth is, is that had you not heard him, he could have died in there. Yes. It's minus 30 again today. What do you think this says about how we should engage with people and and how we can actually, well, you think it's nothing to do with me, but it, it you know, it does. It's a community responsibility to just take care of each other. Be on the lookout, check your yards. If you're leaving containers open, understand that that might be a safe place for someone, even if that's not your intention. <laughs> and to, to keep a lookout for one another. Lisa, I'm glad you were there. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. Lisa Cush lives in Saskatoon. Last week, she helped rescue a man who was stuck in a dumpster for two days. The CBC reached out to the emergency shelter that took in the man Ms. Cush helped last week, but the shelter told CBC it does not give out personal information about its residents. When a great writer dies, the first thing we do is go to the CBC archives, which go back decades. But when you search Charles Portis, you get nothing. He didn't give interviews. In fact, he doesn't seem to have much liked talking to strangers, period. His friend, Nora Ephron, told the New York Times that even when he was a reporter at the New York Herald Tribune in the 60s, he didn't like being reached. She said, he was a newspaper reporter who didn't have a phone. The Trib had to make him get one. So even back then, the pattern was there. Well, despite his stubborn refusal to promote himself, you probably know his work, especially his 1968 novel about a young woman who teams up with a cranky drunk named Rooster Cogburn to avenge her father's death. True Grit and the two movies made of it exposed Mr. Portis's off-kilter storytelling to a mass audience, although he doesn't seem to have cared about that. And if he did, we'll never know. Charles Portis died on Monday. He was 86. He'd made his name as a journalist covering the civil rights movement and was the Herald Tribune's London bureau chief in 1964 when he announced that he was moving to Arkansas, where he'd grown up, to write novels. Two years later, he published Norwood, and then came True Grit. And over the next 23 years, just three more books, each weird and funny and dark, and each different from one another and from anything anyone else was writing. And so brilliant that critic Ron Rosenbaum once called him America's least known great novelist. Other than books, he published the odd short story. And in 1977, he contributed an odd humor piece to The New Yorker called Your Action Line, a parody of advice columns. He made up both the questions and the answers. He addresses fictional readers' concerns about how to get transcripts of the banter at a local bar and how a new no-left-turn sign has added hours to someone's commute. And the last Q&A from Your Action Line goes like this. My science teacher told me to write a paper on the detective ants of Ceylon. And I can't find anything about these ants. Don't tell me to go to the library, because I've already been there. There are no ants in Ceylon. Your teacher may be thinking of the journalist ants of central Burma, These bright red insects grow to a maximum length of one quarter inch, and they are tireless workers, scurrying about on the forest floor and gathering tiny facts, which they store in their abdominal sacs. When the sacs are filled, they coat these facts with a kind of nacreous glaze and exchange them for bits of yellow wax manufactured by the smaller and slower wax ants. 
The journalist ants burrow extensive tunnels and galleries beneath Burmese villages, and the villagers, reclining at night on their straw mats, can often hear a steady hum from the earth. This hum is believed to be the ants sifting fine particles of information with their feelers in the dark. Diminutive grunts can sometimes be heard too, but these are thought to come not from the journalist ants, but from their albino slaves, the butting dwarf ants, who spend their entire lives tamping wax into tiny storage chambers with their heads. That was Charles Portis's writing on the subject of the entirely made-up journalist ants of central Burma. Mr. Portis, author of True Grit, died on Monday. He was 86. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the CBC Listen app. Download it for free from the App Store or from Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.